Good morning, WMNF World. This is Midpoint, your mid-Florida, mid-week, mid-morning source for news and public affairs with a local perspective. I'm your host, Shelley Reback. Last week, I told you that we would hear from our House Democratic leader, Fentress Driscoll. Unfortunately, due to a recently scheduled Appropriations Committee meeting, uh, Rep. Driscoll has had to postpone her time with us to next week. So on February 7th, same time, same place, right here on 88.5 FM and WMNF.org. Representative Fentress Driscoll, who's the leader of the House Democrats, the minority party, will join us uh, at 10 a.m. February 7th. So I hope you'll tune in then. Again, we have a lot to ask her about. So today, instead, we have a really informative show for you with our friends from the Florida Policy Institute, and we will get to them in a minute. But first, uh, since they're here to talk about money, I want to run through a few legislative things in in our legislature in Tallahassee that our analysts are not analyzing. And I want to remind you of why this is the most dangerous time of the year for us Floridians. And it's because the Florida legislature with a Republican supermajority is in session. We should all beware. This is the time of year that they make bad laws and that they avoid making good laws. Now, remember, just a couple of weeks ago, when we all speculated about whether the legislature would still be kowtowing to DeSantis since the collapse of his presidential campaign. Remember that? Remember when we thought, well, maybe now that our Republican legislators have had to stop dreaming about possible cabinet posts or ambassadorships, they might finally get down to legislating things that will actually help Floridians? Yeah, remember that? Remember when we thought that maybe they'll finally call a ceasefire in the Florida culture wars? We were hopeful that maybe, finally, something would be done to fix the homeowner's insurance crisis, to make housing affordable, or to expand Medicaid, or do something that would better the lives of average Floridians. Yeah, well, that still ain't happening. Instead, it looks like what we are getting is legislation to expand DeSantis's private army, the state guard that the legislature created for him last year, and now DeSantis's army is armed. It has police powers and police immunity from prosecution if they, I don't know, kill someone without cause. Their jurisdiction has been expanded so that DeSantis can now send them anywhere he wants, even outside Florida, like maybe to fight in Texas Governor Greg Abbott's war against the federal government at the border. All of this on your tax dollars, which incidentally cost Floridians $15 million in the last fiscal year to fund the DeSantis army. We're also getting some new laws that ban local governments from removing Confederate monuments in their own communities. We're getting some laws to stop local governments and municipalities from ever flying the pride flag. We're getting legislation that prohibits trans people from changing their gender identity on driver's licenses from their sex assignment at birth. And we're getting legislation to lower the age at which teenagers can purchase AR-15 automatic weapons. I kid you not. We are getting legislation to lower 
the age at which teenagers can purchase AR-15 automatic weapons. With DeSantis' support, the Republican-controlled legislature is now seeking to reverse the tiny, teeny, tiny little bit of sensible gun legislation that was passed in the wake of the Parkland school shooting, where a 19-year-old with a rifle killed killed 17 students and faculty members. But now, the Florida House Republicans are moving a DeSantis-backed bill forward to lower the minimum age to purchase AR-15s from 21 to 18 years old. It is House Bill 1223. House Bill 1223. And you can contact the members of the House Criminal Justice Subcommittee to voice your opposition if you're so inclined. But I think it's fair to say that things aren't getting any better for Floridians since Meatball Ron's campaign collapsed. In fact, in most ways, they're getting worse. But maybe there are some bright spots in the legislation researched by the fine analysts with the Florida Policy Institute, who are my guests today. So I want to welcome Noren Dollard, Senior Policy Analyst and Director of Kids Count. Happy to have you, Noren. Thanks for having me. And uh, Tashana Joseph-Mark, Senior Policy Analyst. Thank you for having me. And Alexis Sukalis, Policy Analyst. Thank you for being with us, Alexis. Thank you. Uh, I'm happy to have you all with us. And let me start now with Noreen. Before we get into the policies themselves, I think it would be helpful if you could tell us what is the Florida Policy Institute and what is your work all about? Um, we are a nonpartisan, uh, nonprofit research group. We are focused primarily tax and revenue um, policy. Our issue areas are diverse. Um, as you've already seen, we have education, immigration and worker justice, criminal and juvenile justice. We work in the areas of health care and what we call safety net supports uh, to such as nutrition assistance. We also work in uh, housing and uh, revenue and uh, tax, of course. Um, and our, our purpose as an organization is really to uh, recommend good and just policy that ensures opportunity for, for Floridians. And economic mobility to try to raise Absolutely. people up. And increase and better their quality of life, as I understand it. And and I know that you do this. You guys research. Uh, you research the budget every year. Uh, you analyze the expenses, the revenues, and, and how that is going to affect the everyday lives of uh, Floridians. Um, but And you also do policy advocacy, right? You, like, uh, try to promote the policies that foster the goals that the Institute has, right? So, Noreen, what are we looking at in the state budget, in the new state budget, uh, which has come out recently? Uh, What are we looking at in terms of, let's start with, say, educational priorities. Last year, they passed universal school vouchers. 
That's got to be expensive. We know that, right? And there was very little accountability for how the voucher money was spent. In fact, I think you were here with us on Midpoint to talk about that last year, weren't you? Yeah, and we we noted that people were spending their voucher money on things like large screen TVs and kayaking trips and things like that because there was very little accountability for how the voucher money was spent. Uh, So... Uh, what does this year's education budget look like with regard to vouchers and funding of public education? Well, in terms of funding uh, public education, both the House and the Senate are um, pretty close for the on their K-12 funding and have increased to the base student allocation, <clears throat> which, of course, uh, is applied equally to students who receive vouchers as well as those in public and charter schools. Uh, and uh, and they're... Their proposals are, you know, more than $5,000 per student for base student allocation. They're like within $2, the estimates for each of them. They've uh, allocated $1.6 billion um, in both chambers for early learning, um, which is good news. So uh, overall, the... um, It's it's not a bad budget, um, just as... with the governor's, <clears throat> the governor released his budget uh, at the beginning of December, and uh, there is, there are funds uh, identified for vouchers. There is uh, an education stabilization fund in what we call the back of the bill um, for for vouchers as well. So definitely, it's still a focus for us um, with respect to the accountability aspect. Uh, there is a bill, HB 1403, uh, that has moved favorably through three committees and is intended to provide greater uh, transparency and accountability. It does, in fact, rein in those expenditures um, to only um, only be allowable for uh, reading, science, social studies, and math um, things that support those uh, curricular areas. Um, so there are some attempt. Uh, we don't. I don't think that it the that bill goes far enough to increase the transparency of the expenditures by the scholarship funding organizations. In fact, I think uh, Florida Policy Institute has written a letter right to the education department demanding more information, more accountability on. Uh, for one thing, who's getting these vouchers? You know, are, are are they all going to rich people or what? I mean, because they're universal now. Anybody can get them. So if you already had your kid in a private school that costs close to $20,000 a year, you too could get a, what, $7,500 voucher, is it? Or, it on, on average, yeah. yeah. It's so, a little higher overall, but... So that's one of the things we don't really know is who is taking advantage of this universal... Uh, voucher program and where is the money going and is it really going to reduce the cost of of private school for those families that want to put their kids in private school is it going to reduce the cost of the private schools or are the schools just jacking up their prices to accommodate this extra revenue yeah well i can't speak to the latter part about them you know the private schools and their tuition as much but it is fair to say that um the the Department of Education is not being forthcoming about the characteristics of, of the children being served. Uh, and at, at, 
I won't say not forthcoming, but it's not up to date. The last data that we did have was in September, and that was showing that, you know, more than 70% of um, folks applying for those scholarships were either in private schools already, so not in the public system at all, or kindergartners not in the public system at all. Um, So it is, in fact, subsidizing People who were already, already able to pay their and able to school pay for fees themselves. And also, let's talk about the home uh, homeschooling families. Those homeschooling families were already, you know, covering the expenses of their homeschooling. And they, you know, or they wouldn't be able to do homeschool, you know. So they were already covering their own expenses. So the money is going to them. That's um, That's correct. Um, the there are uh, there are figures that were released um, in the last week or so from the economic and demographic research arm of the legislature uh, with the numbers of students uh, who are getting the home. Um, they're called they're called PEP students, personalized education uh, program students, and. There's a cap of 20000 this year for those students. It has not quite um, been reached at this time in the, in the school year. 20000 That's not very much. That's for homeschool. Oh, uh-huh. Just homeschool. Yeah, no, it's, it's over 350000 for for all scholarships, including the Florida Tax Credit, Family Empowerment uh, Scholarships uh, for Educational Options, and Family Empowerment Scholarships for uh, students with uh, called unique abilities. I, Those I, are students I with thought I read that there was like a $2 billion expense for the current uh, Family Empowerment Scholarship students. That's, yes, in the uh, third, in the, um, they calculate... The uh, they release those calculations about four times a year, beginning um, at the time the budget, uh, the post veto budget is approved, and then the third calculation has just come out. <clears throat> and one of the problems with the way that they're doing it is when a student leaves the public schools, they take their public school dollars with them, right? If they leave the public schools, um, that is. That is correct. Um, there is a lot of discussion about um, money, money following students, and the issue with that is that, as I said a few minutes ago, m- many of these students are have never been in public school, so the, the money can't follow the children because they were never there to begin with. Same with the homeschool. So um, it's not that there was this huge exodus of, of students from the public schools. That was never the issue. It's that they were never there to begin with. Hmm. Um, and so there's a new, greater responsibility of the public education budget um, to serve those students. Yeah, right, because the legislature is responsible for ensuring full funding of the public schools even as the cost of the voucher program continues to grow. Right? I mean, we still have to fund our public schools, right? Yes. So, yeah. Make adjustments. Yeah. um, For those. With more limited resources. As more money goes out to vouchers, there's less resources. And we're already a chronically underfunded state. As far as education goes, we rank in the lower 40s on per pupil expenditures uh, fairly consistently. Um, So, we're already behind the eight ball, um, so to speak. 
All right. We're here with some of the policy analysts from the Florida Policy Institute, and we're talking about health care, education, housing, and jobs policies and the proposals around those issues that are right now moving through your Florida legislature. If you have some questions or comments about any of those areas, please give us a call at 813-239-9663. You can email us at dj at wmnf.org, or you can text us at 813-433-0888. With your questions about what is happening in the legislature regarding these uh, fiscal issues, these financial issues, funding issues, about the things that affect your daily life. So Florida Policy Institute isn't really involved in most of the culture war legislation that I ran through at the top of the show, right? I mean, your focus is pretty much health care, education, housing, jobs, things that, uh, that should affect the quality of life in Florida. So let's talk some more about those things. I want to get into one of the most controversial pieces of legislation that we've been following lately, and that's the changes to the child labor laws that have been proposed in the legislature. Alexis, that's your brief, isn't it? Alexis Sukalis is with us from FPI. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so workers' issues. What is the legislature trying to do regarding uh, child labor? Uh, what, What do we need to know about this House Bill 49, Senate Bill 1596? Uh, what should we understand about that? Yes, those, so those are the big child labor bills that have been filed this session and that are poised to pass. Uh, HB 49 is set to go to the House floor, so it's already moved through all of its committees, and the Senate version just passed its first committee, so for all intents and purposes, uh, they are moving. Um, generally, this is a sweeping rollback, if these were passed, of child labor laws going back to at least the 1980s and in some ways, decades before that. Essentially, it would allow employers to schedule 16 and 17-year-olds for longer hours per shift per week uh, for more than six days in a row when school is in session. And it would take away the break requirement that is in current law. Um, And the idea is that you know, part of the groups that have been pushing for this are industry groups who have said, we're, we have a labor shortage, we're struggling. Um, and while that's undeniable, our response has been, the answer should not be using teens who are already vulnerable to exploitation and sacrificing their health, education, and well-being in order to fill a gap in the workforce, especially since teens that age can already work. So this is just pushing them to basically treat them as adults um, in terms of the hours that they can work and the curfew that they work as well. And and so it seems that there's like a debate uh, on this particular issue of child labor law changes. Um, there's a debate between those who believe that it's really helpful, good, uh, useful uh to have kids working more to gain real-world work experience, that it's not just a benefit to employers who are looking for uh, employees or looking to pad their workforce, but it's also a benefit uh, to the, I want to say children, but it's teens, a benefit to teens uh, who can gain some real-world work experience at an earlier time, um, especially for those teens who are not necessarily college-bound 
uh, students. And that's one side of the debate. And then the other side of the debate, of course, is that kids, teens, need to stay in school and they need to get more education to become economically stable in the long term. And, you know, we know studies have shown more education increases their income earning potential later in life. So it seems like that's the debate on this child labor law legislation, right? Definitely. And I Unfortunately, I think that presents a sort of false dichotomy in that you have to choose one or the other. It has to be school or work. And uh, uh, I have been working since I was a teenager, but it's about balance. And again, teenagers that age can already work. We're just saying during the school year, not summer, not during holiday breaks, but during the school year, the provisions that we have in place now are meant to protect teens from burnout from being too tired to show up and be productive and functional in school. Um, We already know that Florida has one of the highest absenteeism rates uh, in 14 years. Uh, Half of Florida's counties have absenteeism rates above 20%, some as high as 40. So that basically means more than one in five of the students in those counties are missing at least 21 days of school a year. And that's already before we are considering potentially rolling back these child labor laws. So yes, absolutely. Work experience is important, but you can get those without working more than 30 hours a week, more than six days in a row. And you can get those certainly by having a meal break or a rest break. Mm-hmm. More than eight hours a day we're talking about on a school night if these protections are rolled back. And we already know, too, that high schools start the earliest yes. of all the K-12 through 12, uh schools. They start the earliest in the morning. And there's been study after study that shows that teens don't get enough sleep Mm -hmm. uh, as it is. And if you tack on the need to do homework Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, you know, how much time that takes, you're really looking at kids who are probably not going to be sleeping very much at all. And then that raises the question of, is, is that creating a danger for teens who are working in uh, areas where, you know, they're exposed to, I don't know, hot fryers at McDonald's, you know, hot right. French fry oil or, mm-hmm. uh, or, you know, things like that. Or, you know, one of the publicized uh, concerns was with teens working on roofs right. as roofing um Workers, but I think hasn't there been some amendment uh, to the proposed legislation that uh, teens could not work on any structure that was higher than six feet? Yes, um, but before I just wanted to touch on one thing that you had said about the lack of sleep for teens. I'll say one of the proposals being considered on the Senate Bill uh, 1596 would extend the current curfew to midnight on a school night. So you imagine if you're getting up before 8 a.m. and you're allowed, your employer's allowed to schedule you till midnight, um, you know, and you have to drive home and you have to get to sleep. Already, if you're lucky, you're going to get seven and a half hours. And for an adult, maybe that's fine, but we know teens need much more sleep. Um, and then these teens, a lot of them are driving and, and already, and they, they're developing minds and bodies. So these are already... Uh, vulnerable groups of people. And now you're adding sleep deprivation to the equation. And I'll just say even the most, the safest job, if it's not particularly hazardous, can become 
dangerous and unsafe when sleep deprivation is at play. Yeah. And regarding what you said with the roofing, so that's another set of bills that they're not child labor bills on the surface. They're, it's career and technical education are the title of those bills. Um, there's SB 460 and HB 917. And on the whole, the bills are generally seem positive. Uh, they promote alternatives to the traditional college route and make sure that youth and uh, people are aware that there are these trade professions and you can get apprenticeships and, and trade certifications. And so that- And have it be paid for often by unions if it's a union uh, trade. Right, right, you know? right. One of the other benefits of unions that <laughs> we have so little of in Florida. Yes, and so that's the good part of the bill, which is most of those bills. But what concerns us about it is the child labor provision and what you mentioned potentially allowing teens to work uh, in roofing operations. So just to clarify, yes, originally the one of the bills would have allowed for teens to work on heights above six feet. That would include being on roofs. That has since been amended out, but it's still concerning because it's also hazardous and against federal law for for youth to work anywhere near roof roofs. So mm. if you're on the ground or you're near a roof, like you're helping a roofer, mm. you could even be a materials helper on the ground handling hot tar. That's mm-hmm. very dangerous, dangerous, but right. you're not on a roof or you're not on a ladder over six feet. So that's still something that needs to be addressed in the bill because not only is that exceptionally dangerous, but it's absolutely against the Federal Fair Labor Standards Act. Ah, okay. All right, listeners, what do you think about this change to the child labor laws? Good thing, bad thing, kids should stay in school or kids should get real world work experience at an earlier age. Uh, Give us a call and tell us what you think. 813-239-9663. I've got Fran from Largo uh, on the phone. We're going to hear from Fran. Fran, you're on the air. Oh, thank you. Uh, Yes, I personally uh, don't like this bill at all. Uh, I think it's just another one more thing taking us backwards. Uh, but uh, in any event, uh, I wonder if any companies that employ teenagers would uh, uh, be against a thing like this. Would they, any of them speak up and say, no, we're not going to go along with this. We want to, you know, let the teenagers only work a certain amount of hours. We don't like this. And, you know, some, some companies do have scruples. They do have ethics. And, you know. They're, they're uh, well, maybe- but they're not necessarily going to the legislature as themselves. I mean, yeah. generally, companies collectively hire a lobbyist, like hypothetically the, you know, Florida Chamber of Commerce or something like that. Um you know, industries have their own lobbyists. It's usually not like one one company, like say Publix. Oh, although I that's a big one, they may have their own they're lobbyist. Also, they're also big now, big, big, big corporations. I understand. Yeah. Now, now, how about boycotts? If some of these companies uh, do take advantage of kids. Uh, uh, teenagers, kids, whatever you want to call Well, we first have to see what legislation actually comes out of the legislature. These are proposals. But thanks for calling in, Fran. Appreciate it. I've got another call. Thank you. I'm going to take this call from DeAndre in Brandon. DeAndre, you're on the air. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. 
What do you think about Steve? Well, let's see. We talked about education and we talked about the child labor laws so far. What do you think about those issues? I don't necessarily enjoy the idea uh, with these child labor laws because whether you're talking education and then child labor, nothing's fully baked. And when it comes to this uh, issue, we're just opening. I feel like they're like, I don't know, unintentionally to intentionally, I don't know, opening up the chance that children will be exploited Mm. in like Mm -hmm. many horrific way that's a good point we hadn't talked about that Mm -hmm. yeah um there's already uh this issue i mean where you have excuse me but the bathhouse thing that would get report or reported in the news or the the massage parlor type deals uh, uh-huh and then there are people who children who go missing so often Mm. You know, in the, in the state, in this country, it's a problem. And then with education, again, like, everybody needs to have an open and honest conversation about the pros and cons of every form of education and the history of education and how it seems. That is just my opinion. Okay. Certain things have been tweezed out of education that uh, really actually uh, thrust children forward into passionately enjoying learning because yeah. at a certain point things become very uh, personal to them. I can't express it uh, with a better term. Well, I think what you're, maybe you're talking about things like kids who don't see themselves and their families and their lives reflected in the classroom because of the don't say gay uh, because of the anti-DEI stuff, because of the, you know, change in uh, black history teaching, you know, all those different things. Kids don't see themselves in the education and maybe, you know, creating barriers to their Or com- feedback comfort. loop. Yeah. It's like a feedback loop that really degradates communities, particularly when certain uh, positions are removed from that community and then Unfortunately, yeah. Uh, DeAndre, my phones are blowing up here. Can I take another call? I really appreciate you calling in. I think you made an exceptionally good point, though, about the potential for exploiting kids. Um, Alexis has something to add on that, but thanks for your call. Did you want me to go? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, Yeah, thanks. That was uh, excellent points that he brought up. I want to just say on the exploitation front, um, one of the arguments that has been made by people in favor of the child labor proposals is that this is just giving youth the option to work more. It's not a mandate, but the exact definition of an employee-employer relationship is you don't set your own hours. You're not an independent contractor. An employer has the power. They have the control. And there's nothing in the proposals that say a, 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 a youth or their parent can refuse this without retaliation or without being fired. So we know that those who are in a position to turn this down um, are going to be, you know, middle to upper class, probably um, students and workers and unfortunately people of color and immigrants living on low incomes, they're going to be the ones most vulnerable to exploitation. They're not going to be as able to say no. Yeah, even parents, foster parents, telling mm-hmm. their kids, you got to go out to work, mm-hmm. bring bring back some money. Right. You know, there's no control for that. Let me take a call from Natalie and Brandon. Natalie, you're on the air. Hi, good morning. Yes, I want to address the work age and experience. Um, I have a 13-year-old who will be in high school this fall. 
we're looking at high schools, there's no shortage of programs at any high school. It doesn't have to be a magnet program, <clears throat> excuse me, that can provide teens with real-world work experience. So you don't have to go out and get a job to get that experience. You can have it as a part of your education mm-hmm. in high school. For teens who need money to bring in for themselves or their family, they can do like I did. They can rake leaves. They can mm-hmm. clean gutters. They can walk the dog. Right. There's any number of things that you can do in your own neighborhood if you just get out and off the screen. So I am 129% against um, lowering the age <clears throat> you know, for students, for teens to be able to work and increasing their risk of getting injury. Yeah. Well, this is HB 49 and House Bill 49 and Senate Bill 1596. So I encourage everybody who has strong feelings about these bills to contact your legislators and let them know. Thanks for calling in, Natalie. Appreciate it. And just to clarify one thing there, the age isn't being changed. So already 16 and 17 year olds can work. It's just that the hours they can work are potentially going to be expanded and uh, their breaks could be taken away. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Okay. And I've got Glenn on the line. Glenn, do you have some thoughts on these topics? Yes, I do. Uh, my name is uh, Glenn Jablina, calling from Manatee County. So Thanks. I'm, seven, I'm 72. I've been swinging a hammer for 55 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, this bill, uh, it, it's so ridiculous that you think we're, we're, we have to limit our kids. I've been throwing newspapers. I started throwing newspapers when I was eight. And, uh, you know, I don't have a problem there. I was in the restaurant business at 14 and a carpenter at 16. These laws to limit uh, kids these days, first of all, I like to say that schools get out earlier. It's not as though you're staying there till 4 o'clock. So you've got some lag time there. The other thing is the, the, the six-foot limit. You know, if I was 16, I told my dad, hey, I want to use the car for prom, but i got to clean the gutters. Oh, no, you can't go up on that ladder. It's over six feet. You think I'd get that car? It's ridiculous. <laughs> More government inter- intrusion. I am telling you, the, it is a workers' market right now. I'm a general contractor. Okay. I have to sub out. I have to sub out everything. Mm-hmm. I can't do roofs. I can't do plumbing. I can't do electrical. I'm nothing but a glorified babysitter. But the subs, those are the ones that take responsibility. Workers are hard to get. They're going to take them through the whole OSHA requirement for that job to run tool safety you know you look at manatee technical college they're big on safety all their carpenter electrical that's the first thing they won't learn so this is saying well we're taking a kid off the street and working them 10 hours and he's not done okay glenn the voice of manatee county thank you for calling in with that perspective i appreciate Uh, it alexis what do you think about what glenn has said I appreciate your words, Glenn, and I appreciate hearing what you have to say, especially being someone who's worked since they're a teen and you're, you know, on the so-called front lines as a, in construction. I definitely understand what you're saying because I, you know, I, I'm a Greek American. I, I grew up a family of immigrant grandparents. We very much have a hard, hard work ethic instilled in us. I started babysitting when I was young. I started in the restaurant business when I was young as well. I'm not saying, and this, proposal is not saying that we should not let 16, 17 year olds work. We're just saying they can already work up to 30 hours a week. They can already work up to eight hours a day and they can already work up to six days in a row when school's in session. During the summer and during breaks, they don't really, they don't have limits at all. So they can go above and beyond that. So 
why should we be changing that now when it's been working in the past? Understand there's a labor shortage and we definitely need more people in the skilled trades, but these issues are complicated and rolling back protections for vulnerable populations, in our opinion, is not the answer. And just to your point about OSHA, I'll say the OSHA 10 certification that is being proposed in the bill, that is OSHA itself has said that it is a voluntary program and it does not meet their safety and training standards. So it's something that's kind of a basis to get you an intro into safety, but it would not satisfy the requirements. So what would happen is if this bill were to pass and employers thought, oh, I can now have teens work in roofing, or if the other child labor bills were to pass extending hours, the federal government would still come in and say, no, this is still against the law. You're still putting these people in hazardous situations and we're still going to prosecute you, fine you, um, and you know, instill penalties. All right. Well, um, again, it's House Bill 49, Senate Bill 1596. If you have strong feelings or opinions about uh, the changes proposed to the child labor laws, you should talk to your legislators about it. Um, I'm going to shift gears a little bit, um, and I want to talk to Tashana Joseph-Mark, who's one of the other analysts who is with us here today. Tashana, you've been keeping your eye on several bills related to uh, criminal justice, right? Why don't you tell us about them? Yes. um, So this year, Florida lawmakers at at they are at a crossroads where they have to decide between investing billions of dollars in building new prisons or um, enacting um, um, smart criminal justice policies. So some of the bills that we are supporting, um, if, um, for example, HB 133, which is like um, which is a bill that would expand um, um, occupational licensing opportunities for people with past felony convictions, right? So we are, like my colleague Alexis have been um, talking about, we're talking about workforce development. And in Florida, um, we have some of um, some of the most restrictive policies as it relates to allowing people with past criminal convictions to be able to enter our workforce. Um, For example, um, HB 133, what it does is that it it reduces the amount of time that people have to wait um, to apply for licensing, such as barber, cosmetology, like general contractor. So current laws um, prescribes that you have to wait um, after five years, a criminal conviction cannot be the sole ground for um, for a licensing board to disqualify you. So this bill, what it seeks to do is reduce that five years to a three-year period. Um, another provision that... Um, that it contains... That, wait a minute, that seems kind of arbitrary, like from five years to three years. Why not, like, let people, right. you know? Okay. I mean, I guess, it, it, what's the point of that time period? Is it to show that you're not immediately going to turn around and commit more crime? Right. So so if we were to have our ways, <laughs> it would have been no time period, yeah, right? right. Um, but the three-year period is a... It's better pretty, than five. It's a middle ground, right? Yeah. Because currently the state, um, the way that they track the recidivism rate, right? So recidivism is um, is, is people returning back to prison, right? So right. currently um, the state res- recidivism rates has 
they have been steady for the past few years. So the state currently tracks people. For example, if somebody um, came, if somebody was released from prison in 2016, so the state pretty much tracks you down for like three years um, to see if you would return to prison by 2019. So we figure the three-year period is is a good time to kind of like. Um, yeah, because they, they have that information at three years. Yes. So, okay. So that makes sense. Okay. Uh, so uh, that that seems like a good bill. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> right, right. Something good out of the Florida yeah. legislature, the Republican supermajority Florida legislature. It is. It is a great bill, and I and I'm glad that it it has been receiving bipartisan support. Right. Oh, good. So one of the provisions. Um, well, that's really great because right now several of our prisons are actually offering vocational programs. For for example, like barbers and um, a lot of things, I've forklifting. So um, that other provision, what it will do is actually allowing um, folks who have completed these educational programs to be able to use them as credits when they do as requirement for when they apply for an occupational license. Also right? good and so sensible. Ta- yeah. Right. So we so taxpayers are already paying right. for these programs, right? Yeah. And then we Let's telling get these those people, people out and working. So right. They avoid since we want behavior. like a stronger we want a stronger workforce and we're already giving them the training while they are incarcerated. That right? seems so sensible. So we saying, okay, they have the training and let us reduce some of the barriers. And that's why we are talking about reducing the amount of years that they have to wait. So they already have those trainings instead of them having because right now current laws, although it even if you have already been trained in prison, um, uh, before you can actually apply, let's say, let's say, let's say for example, for a barbering license, you still have to go through that entire process all over. Yeah. And one of the things that we know, if somebody just got released from prison, they do not have the um, income, right, right, to actually go and take on. Um, the training and the uh, the number of Pay hours the that license, I needed, the licensing and all of that. Yeah. So what that does is pretty much creating, um, like making it easier for people to use those credits um, and and towards the overall requirements for. So if they can for, hold out for three years, they yeah. have a chance to get back into the legitimate workforce. So, <laughs> pretty much, yeah. So yes, because uh-huh. right now, by like current, like out. In Florida, more than 50% of people who have been released within a three-year period, they get rearrested, right? Right. So, and it's been costing the state, like, annually, like, annually the incarceration rates have been going up, right? So, currently, it's 28, um, roughly $28,000, right? So, um, it is expected to, to go by... T- Fiscal year twenty four twenty five for it to be at twenty nine thousand dollars in a rough estimate to keep somebody in prison. Yes, yeah. annually, per, annually, yeah, yeah per that's, person, right? Yeah. So, so we are saying it's such cheap college, fees. right? And studies have shown, like, if you give people of real jobs, not just like jobs where they can earn like, you know, um, livable wages. What it will do is that it will create a sense of purpose. These people will be able to um, like, you know, afford basic necessities and they will be able to be more present in the um, communities, stronger ties, less likely to return to prison. Now you've got one other bill that I know you're watching that I'm interested in. That's the SNAP felony bill, which is House (laughs) Bill 409. 
Give right. us a quick a quick understanding of what that bill is all about. Okay, so right now in in Florida, um, if you let's say you um, you have been in prison and your um, um, your you were convicted and and of it a was felony. a dr- of a felony, yeah. But it was a drug tr- drug trafficking um, felony. But mm-hmm. the the term drug trafficking, not necessarily drug trafficking, as the term as we commonly know, like when you hear somebody say, "Oh, trafficking drugs," it's pretty much like certain drug felonies, right? And okay. drug trafficking is one of them. Okay. So it is a it is it is a ban that Florida had opted in. in in the 1990s, and what is what it does is that if you have been convicted convicted of these crimes, you are not allowed to receive to receive like TNF um, and as well as SNAP, which uh, commonly so like known food as assistance. food stamps. Yes. Yeah, food stamps. Yes. So if you're fe- convicted of certain drug felonies, you can't get food stamps. So now there's a bill to, is there a bill to repeal that uh, yes. restriction? So there's a bill to repeal that because it is a federal um, mandate that we opted in. Uh-huh. So a lot of states, for example, even Mississippi, a lot of states have opted out of that ban like fully. But in Florida, we had opted out of it partially, but we are still in for these specific, um, for the specific uh, um, um our offenses. So, but what's happening right now is that the bill has already gone through its first committee. Um, there is an amendment, though, that kind of like took away the most whole of the bill, good parts, the bill, no doubt. Right? So, the amendment, what it does now, it, it only creates that exception for people who have been victim of human trafficking who also had a drug traffic, like uh-huh. a drug um, yeah. convictions, right? And this DCF the, uh, um, has to determine that. So that's where we are at right now, where we are um, pretty much talking to lawmakers and like, okay, hey, what are what are some of the steps that DCF has to follow in order to kind of like determine if somebody has indeed been a victim of human trafficking? That seems and we- like such a stupid restriction <laughs> exception you know i mean wh- i mean sure if you've been a victim of of sex trafficking and and you have committed a drug trafficking offense that's like okay we understand maybe you committed this drug trafficking offense under duress you know as a victim of some higher power some higher authority but anybody who comes out of prison with a felony conviction, who is in that first three years before they can get a professional license or a business license to do a legitimate job, is probably going to have some, you know, difficulties buying food for their families. Right. I mean, why would we restrict the SNAP benefits uh, from those people? So is there no hope of there being no exception to that? Is there no hope of that? No, you're so shaking your I, head. I don't think so because we are in, in Florida. We are still pretty much dealing with the mentality of like you know being tough on crime and yeah. war, the war on drugs, how we perceive like just overall drug related charges. And right. this has changed over the years, but overall in the mind in the in the minds of our politicians, this is still very much something where it's like, oh, you know, for example, in the past, like you know, the narrative was, oh, if folks who are, for example, who are addicted to drugs. They will sell their stamps to buy to buy more drugs, and that's a narrative that that has yeah. been that we have been All dealing right. with for years, right? Yeah. Um, so I think parts of that remnants of that is still very are um, still very much alive in in our um, today's discourse. Yeah. What about uh, well? 
Let me, let me, I see we're getting short of time here. I Thank you, Tashana. I appreciate you, that information. Um, and so if you're interested in that SNAP felony ban uh, bill exception, that's House Bill 409. So you can talk to your legislators about that, right? And, uh, and again, if you want to support the occupational licensing bill, uh, that's House Bill 133. And you can talk to your legislators about that. I want to uh, go back to Alexis briefly to talk about some of these anti-immigrant bills that are still sitting there uh, moving through the legislature. I guess they're not sitting. They're moving forward because we have a very anti-immigrant governor and the Florida legislature is still bowing to his uh, priorities. And so uh, you've been, I know, Alexis, you've been watching some of these anti-immigrant bills and uh, – a couple of them I want to talk about. There's one on identification documents. There's one on driving without a valid driver's license, which is interesting since, you know, they're making it almost impossible for any immigrants to get driver's licenses. Uh, so uh, tell us quickly about those. Yes. Uh, so just to set some context on this, a lot of these bills, especially the identification documents bill, and even to some extent the driver's license bill you mentioned, are building on the sweeping anti-immigrant law that was passed last session, which was SB 1718, which now became law. Um, so yes, we've seen a pattern of continuing to cut immigrants, specifically immigrants without a documented status, out of um, you know, being part of Florida's economy, being part of our communities and instilling fear. And so one of those bills that is moving is the identification documents bill. And essentially that primarily is a result of the proliferation of community ID programs in South Florida. And what a community ID does is basically, it's not just for immigrants, but it could be people who are experiencing homelessness, those who are survivors of intimate partner violence or domestic violence um, who can't get a traditional ID for whatever reason and they still need identification to get a library card, to pick up their kids from school or daycare, um, do basic everyday things that we might take for granted. And this essentially would say, well, if you have a community ID um, and we know that those community IDs programs did not require you to verify your immigration status, then we're not going to allow local governments to accept those. And that's that's the main one right now that is moving. That's so sad. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. And, of course, driving without a valid driver's license, is that are they, like, increasing criminal penalties for that if you are in an undocumented status? Or what's the, what's the bill related to that? It doesn't address immigrants directly, but it's clearly going to impact immigrants, uh, especially those who are undocumented, because they do not have driver's licenses in the state. On last session, the state with SB 1718 already said, we're not going to accept driver's licenses from other states that grant them to uh, undocumented people. So now this is adding harsher penalties for anyone uh, driving without a valid driver's license, but it does seem to seem, uh, it does appear that it is specifically targeting at least indirectly, undocumented immigrants. Yeah, but anybody, if your license has been suspended and you're out there on the road, yeah. be aware the yeah. penalties are increasing. Yeah, because right uh, now you can already get fines and fees, but then they're going to start adding misdemeanors and, and more serious crimes and yeah, charges. Yeah, and they'll take you to jail if you're the only one in the car because there's no one with a valid license with you to drive your car. They'll 
impound your car. You'll pay hundreds of dollars to get it back. It's it's just it's a bad thing. Right. Don't let yourself be caught in that situation. Okay, I really wanted to talk about the state of the budget generally and all of the federal dollars that Floridians pay into the federal government in their taxes that the Florida Republican supermajority legislature has rejected and has made it that much more expensive to be a Floridian in Florida because the dollars that you already pay are not being sent back home to Florida at the uh, you know instigation of your governor and your legislature. I want to talk about that, and we are out of time. So I'm going to have to have you guys come back, and maybe we'll do a whole show on all the Florida dollars that uh, are being withheld by the Florida legislature for things like uh, summer food programs for school kids who are food insecure and s- development of solar programs and climate pollution reduction grants and home energy improvement money. All of those things are being withheld from you by your Republican supermajority legislature. Um, and it's money that you've already paid in to have them. Uh, so uh, we'll have to have you come back for that because unfortunately we are out of time and I want to thank the listeners for being so attentive to us and and always calling in with uh, smart comments we appreciate you so much I'm grateful to our friends at the Florida Policy Institute for coming over here um, and being in the studio with us today, stepping in for House Democratic leader Fentress Driscoll, who had to attend a House Appropriations Committee meeting today, but who says she will be with us next week um, and has committed to February 7th at 10 a.m. So we hope you'll tune in again uh, for her. Thanks so much to Noreen Dollard to Tashana Joseph-Mark and to Alexis Sukalis for giving us this view into what our Florida government is doing and not doing with our Florida tax dollars. We learned a lot and we appreciate uh, you coming and educating us about that. I want to thank our WMNF volunteer production staff, Jessica Green and Barbara Fling, for getting the show and your calls on the air. Now, you may have heard that we are entering the WMNF Spring Fun Drive already. They've given me a pretty big fundraising goal again. And if you appreciate the programs we bring to you every week on Midpoint, please consider making a generous donation to support us and to support this show. Now, please stay tuned for Talking Animals with Duncan Strauss. We are WMNF Tampa. Music,